Hello and welcome to episode number 94 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, June 14th, 2010. On this episode of the podcast, I will be playing the second part of an interview with Douglas Lane, who is the creator of the Diet Soap podcast, and we will be talking about the Small Mart Revolution from the perspective of a socialist anarchist. Now, this interview is just under 20 minutes, so towards the latter half of the podcast, I will be sharing some listener comments and some listener emails. But first... Here's my conversation with Douglas Lane of the Diet Soap Podcast. I was wondering what your thoughts are on this notion of a small mart revolution. Um, it seems like it seems like that's a step that we can take now in a practical direction that would really get us on the road towards relocalization and greater community resiliency. And I'm not sure I see that kind of vision articulated on the, on the left as much. Right. Well, you know, I recently had Reverend Billy from the church of stop shopping on my podcast diet soap. I don't know to what extent you've been listening, but he's, um, he, he's this kind of evangelical preacher who is not religious. His whole message is that we need to get out from underneath the corporate structure and, and take charge of our lives. And so he has this, it used to be called the Church of Stop Shopping, and now it's called the Church of Life After Shopping. Um, and he definitely advocates, you know, when you are shopping to look for local businesses um, and support and, and make an effort to support local economies so that the majority of what you're spending stays in your community. And I definitely think that that is a very worthwhile thing to practice. Um, but ultimately with his church and with, uh, his church, it's not really a church, but with his mission and what I agree with is that we were going to eventually get outside of the capitalist logic. It doesn't mean that, um, there's nothing useful about, uh, this small mart revolution or, or nothing useful about turning to those kinds of local businesses now. I mean, we're in this economy now, and those are that's definitely the better option than going to Walmart. Um, there's no doubt about it. It's just on every level a smarter choice. It's a more ethical choice. But I don't think this should be our vision. It certainly isn't the left's vision or his vision. As the end goal, to the end goal would be to create a new kind of logic, a new kind of system altogether. But in the meantime, that kind of uh, action is definitely worthwhile you know one thing that you you talked about with uh that your guest what was his name again michael schumann yeah one what you talked about with him was the fact that the economic policies that are in place now these stimulus policies um that are supposed to help uh, bolster local businesses and smaller businesses aren't really doing that work and that uh, a lot of the public money is really ending up funneling back to very large corporations. That was what I walked away from your podcast with that that bit of information. And I definitely think that um, political efforts to, to 
change that, to reform that, are worthwhile. But just like uh, environmental movements that are trying to reform the current system, I think that it's important to realize that ultimately we're not going to be as local as we want and as sustainable as we want without challenging the overall structure. So we're not going to be as ecologically minded as we'd like to be within this system. The state can't fix it and the private sector can't fix it really either right now. And I think the same thing's true when it comes to local localizing power and, and money. I don't think that the state or the private sector as it stands now really has the answers. And so we're going to look to some other kinds of relationships to, to do the job. Okay, but we're looking for these relationships in the context of collapse. So the yeah. the, the uh, it seems to me like articulating a, a vision, you know, a leftist vision beyond that. I, I guess one of the things that I struggle with is that socialism seems like something to me that emerged from a specific context in history, and it it has a very it it has obviously the connotations of a centralized entity doing the socialist reforms, although obviously you're an anarchist socialist, so that's right. something that's totally different, and that's something that's never been really tried before at a national level or a global level or, you know, I mean, even these anarchist socialist communities that have formed have been kind of short-lived for the most part, uh, or they've been kind of these hippie communes or whatever. It's It's hard for me to see beyond just building the local resiliency. I mean, it seems it almost seems like a little bit presumptuous to me to think that we could somehow articulate what it's going to be like, you know, 30 years from now. I guess I'm just saying, you know, let's get through the collapse first. Let's let's find a reasonable way to get through the collapse first, one. And then two, we have this onerous corporate system that, you know, clearly we can get a lot of different people from the left and the right and from everywhere else to agree is it's really just crushing us and destroying the world. So we need to get under out from under the yoke of that. And it seems like beyond that, you know, it's going to be really difficult to predict or even articulate what the world is going to look like. Well, I'm curious to know how you see us getting out from underneath the collapse without in some way changing our political and economic institutions. Well, those are the things that are collapsing, right? Um, well, I don't know. It seems to me that the, the that the political institutions are changing, but I don't think they're collapsing exactly. I, I see the corporate world and the state as being more powerful than ever right now. I, uh, so what's what's happening is the human face of our social and political. Uh, institutions are kind of falling away, but their power uh, and their longevity, I don't think we, it's easy to say whether they're actually collapsing I don't, I don't, I, or if they're being disempowered. I don't see that so much. Okay, um, so David Holmgren writes a lot about this in his book, Future Scenarios. Uh, I, I'm sure I've linked to this before uh, in previous episodes of the podcast, but I will do so again. Um, for the benefit of listeners. And there's also some podcasts out there about this topic with David Holmgren. But one of the things that's very interesting about how David 
looks at this scenario is he creates a basically the future scenarios are four different scenarios based on differing rates of peak oil and differing intensities of climate change. So you have really rapid peak oil, you know, 10% declines over 20 years, or really slow peak oil, 2% declines. And then you have a similar scenario with climate change, milder climate change and extremely intense climate change. And then he just mixes the various combinations of those two things to form four scenarios. Now, in one of the scenarios, the brown tech scenario, the peak oil is, the you know, the peak fossil fuels uh, is slow, but the global warming is pretty intense. So the state is incredibly empowered by this because they have all these access to fossil fuels that they, you know, really depend on for their central control and power. But in other scenarios where the oil drops off much more rapidly and drastically, they collapse or in, uh, and are unable to control things uh, a lot more quickly and a lot more suddenly. What are your thoughts on differing kinds of, you know, kind of biophysical and geographic and economic scenarios like that? I don't know. I have to ask questions about it because I'm not sure. But the first question that comes to mind when it comes to when I hear that that peak oil would make the institutions of power as they stand now collapse more quickly. My question is, what part of the state's power would be undermined the most as oil reserves decline? Well, there, the economic capacity of the country would be seriously undermined because GDP and energy consumption are so closely related. And also, you know, money supply, until recently anyway, money supply and hydrocarbon resources consumption have been pretty closely related. So our economic activity is directly related to that. Our capacity to project military power is clearly and obviously very closely related to that, although obviously the military is going, currently trying very hard to secure those future oil supplies as they decline. So I don't, I'm not sure exactly that we know what they're going to be constrained by. I mean, we've already seen it with farms, you know, big, huge mega farms starting to collapse because when fuel prices were at $140 a barrel for oil or $147 a barrel, that was only for a few months that that happened. Um, we also saw global trade really slow down drastically because the, the price of f fuel was so high. So it seems like if we had, you know, $200 a barrel oil, which isn't all that impossible, I think, if, if some of these higher decline rates materialize, um, it seems like economic activity would slow to a crawl compared to what we've been used to over the past 20 or 30 years. And it also seems like our capacity and ability to move goods around would really slow down. These corporations, they rely on, you know, their jets. And I'm not saying all of that's going to go away, but it's going to start reaching a point where the profitability becomes perhaps non-existent. I don't know. I mean, a lot of this is speculation, but it mm -hmm. seems like really low fuel prices, these guys have been, you know, riding that wave for a long time. Well, okay. A couple things occur to me. One is that it's very possible that the United States will 
fall as an empire and that some other state will become dominant without changing the economic or political structure of the world very much so that the center of power might shift away from Europe and the United States to say Asia, to China and India, but that we'll still be living in the same kind of um, basically political, the same kind of basic political structure. In fact, we could see a more, more totalitarian structure emerge um, as a result of it, uh, because at least with China, you're, you're talking about the worst of both worlds there. You've got a very centralized, a powerful government and a brutal capitalist regime going on simultaneously there. So the way I look at it is that there, you know, there's this game going on that is our social political structure and it has its rules. And just because most of the players are going to lose doesn't mean that the game's going to stop or that the rules are going to change. Yeah, sure. I'll buy into that uh, for sure. So I guess to tie it back into the small mart revolution, was, which is where we started, is to say that we empower ourselves by relocalizing our communities. Mm-hmm. And so obviously the game's not going to stop. This is still going to go on. Our children are going to deal with this. Our grandchildren are going to deal with this right. in terms of these, all the political machinations and the international skullduggery and the whole works. And obviously we're going to have to be dealing with this nuclear arsenal for many years to come. Um, so all that's not going to go away, obviously, even in the context of a slower collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, or a fast collapse that, that I, I can envision a devastated world where everywhere looks like, uh, I don't know, the Congo, right? Where just massive uh, death and deprivation, where the institutional structures remain relatively the same. Uh, that they that you still have a large class divide, power is still concentrated in the same basic hands, maybe fewer of them, but you don't have any kind of collapse of those institutions and their rules. You just have this excess of violence and deprivation, which is tolerable as long as the game is still being played, right? What I would say is what we want to do is relocalize as an act of defiance and resistance to the game. Okay, that's exactly, you're taking the words right out of my mouth on that one. So go ahead with that. So now, doing that, relocalizing as an act of resistance and defiance of the game and and its rules, you have to say, you know, there may be times where you're still playing by some parts of those rules. So like you're you're, you're creating a nonprofit. That's part of the, the system, right? But it may be by playing this piece this way, you are ultimately bringing it into the game, or you can see it as a strategic move to bring down the game. But uh, I think that ultimately you're not going to be playing by those rules anymore. And I can't say you're going to be playing by anarchist socialist rules instead. I don't really know. Uh, I, I, I tend, to, tend to think that, but that's my ideology. But I, whether we're talking about true libertarian capitalism or a socialist state, what we're working at is changing that political structure and the game itself, ending this game and starting another one. And, th- that, uh, and that's a political question, and, and you know, 
then we can start to have conversations about what what kind of game we want to play as we challenge the system. Okay, so you and I are actually coming full circle on this. I think we actually agree pretty much in terms of the small mart revolution is it's a pretty practical program that we can implement over the next 10 years to really get ourselves relocalized and and within this game uh, as we're as we're still trapped in this game it's something we can do now right because we have to come up with some kind of strategy to make the transition right right i would just say that i'm more comfortable thinking of that as a stopgap measure inside this system with the end goal still being completely stepping outside of the game rather than calling this tactic a revolution itself because you could have a, uh, an economy based on really small capitalist uh, enterprises and still not be outside of the, the, the game. You're still playing the, the same game by the same rules. Um, and to a large extent, I think you could have a big socialist state standing over you and you're still playing the same game by the same rules too. Uh, so I just would say my only concern with it is not that, that is that to the extent that it, the small mart revolution sees small businesses as the end goal, I, 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 I'm not in line with it to the extent that it's part of an effort to relocalize that has more of a utopic goal at the end. I am. Yeah. And that way it's, it's a strategy that's essentially a tactic for a larger strategy. And exactly. I would, you know, for me, the larger strategy would be articulated in a more Gandhian vision of how economics is supposed to work and how community, um, community social interactions are supposed to work. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I would have this, you know, kind of situationist anarchist version of how the economy is supposed to work. But that those differences in our vision are not as important right now as the similarities in our vision. And also, I wouldn't expect either one of us to be right about what ultimately we're going to arrive at, what kind of game we're going to play. I, I feel like the tactics that we use now and what, how we respond now are going to shape how, what kind of game we're, we're playing. And that's why it's important to kind of continue to have a political conversation alongside of these conversations about practical matters like how to pick a mushroom. Um, I, I, at least that's what I think. Okay, well, uh, I guess we'll leave it at that. That was very interesting, and it's good to kind of come full circle on on some of this stuff and actually, you know, start to resonate with one another in terms of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, I I feel really good about it too, and um, I uh, enjoyed listening to your your, your conversations uh, about the the small mart revolution. I thought it it, it definitely challenged me and my uh, kind of ideological presumptions. And made me think that was worthwhile. Well, on that note, Doug Lane uh, of the Diet Soap podcast, you can find that at dietsoap.org and dietsoap.podomatic.com. Mm-hmm. I will link to that on the show notes for this episode. Uh, thank you for joining us, and thank you for putting together this little project that you've put together. And hopefully people, uh, I'll link to your Kickstarter page as well in the show notes. People can click through to that, and if this seems like something they feel like would be worthwhile to support, they can do so. That would be great. Thanks a lot. That concludes my interview with Douglas Lane of the Diet Soap podcast. I will link to Doug's website and uh, podcast page on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. 
And also remind you that Doug is currently doing a Kickstarter project to do his urban foraging and self-help book. And we talked about that in the previous episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, which is episode number 93. And if you would like to know more about that, I will also link to the Kickstarter page for Doug's project. And hopefully you will support that project. Now, before I get into reading some listener email and some listener comments, I'd like to update you on some of the things that are going on on the website, agroinnovations.com. We have a blog now, the Agro Innovations blog. Previously, it was the front page, but um, I didn't like the look and feel of that so much, so I created a separate blog for it. And you can find a link to that on the front page at agroinnovations.com or on the podcast page at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, If you are in the local New Mexico or Albuquerque area, I will be posting this week some photos of last weekend's local food festival, which was at the Hubble House in the South Valley of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So if you'd like to see some pictures of that, especially if you are at that event or if you are active locally in the food movement in New Mexico and Albuquerque in particular, you might be interested in taking a look at some of those photos. Well, uh, I've gotten some great email and some great comments on the comment thread for the Agro-Innovations podcast, and I'd like to share some of those with you. I'd like to start with one of the most relevant comments to this episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast, and that was a comment written by Jim. Jim said, Regarding small business and socialist societies, the question isn't whether the business is small or large, but whether it engages in wage labor. Personally, I see no reason to privilege small businesses as more human than large business, and I've been a small business owner and a socialist. In fact, in my life, petty tyrants have been worse to workers than nearly invisible corporate ones. Economies of scale can be to a worker's advantage. Appropriate size does not equal small. Ideally, I'd prefer cooperatives to small business, where all workers share the decisions, risks, and benefits. Likewise with land holdings. If you tend your land, are actually using it, or have reason to hold it in preservation, I see no reason to collectivize it. Even the Spanish collectivists allowed for individualists, who didn't want to belong to a collective, to be allotted as much land as they themselves could tend. Any more than that is either wasting a valuable resource, or allowing an individual control over the means of production and reintroducing wage labor. Labor in a socialist system is free, self-determined, democratic, not sold off in pieces for a wage. Goods can be bought and sold, but labor is not a commodity. In other words, if you want someone to work for you, you'd have to settle for someone working with you, with all the negotiating that partnerships entail. And since the vast majority of production today is cooperative, social, most labor in a socialist world would also be cooperative rather than individual. But assuming no dire need for scarce land, I see no reason an individualist would be denied land for themselves. Well, Jim, thank you for your thought-provoking comments. Those can be viewed in the comment thread for the previous episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast. Now, I also received an email from Joshua, and let me read what Joshua had to say. I just wanted to drop you a line and say that I really appreciate your podcast. I've been listening for about six months, but I have been going through your archives a bit at a time. I found you either through the Sea Realm or Diet Soap, and of course, Lorenzo started me off in podcast land. 
It's really a great dialogue that flows through the various people and their podcasts, and I share it with anyone who finds some interest in the subjects you bring on. My family and I homestead in Republic, Washington, at 49 degrees north, and practice an ever-evolving blend of permo-dynamic, holistic planned actions upon the land and ourselves. Well, Joshua, thank you for writing in. Uh, thank you for listening to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you for sharing it with people who are interested in these topics. Uh, that is one of the best things you can do to support the Agro Innovations Podcast. And it is a great thing you can do to support some of the other podcasts that you mentioned, like the Sea Realm and Diet Soap. Now, I also got a message from Sergio, who is from Bolivia. And Sergio writes, I'm a longtime listener of your podcast, but it is the first time I'm writing to you. When I started listening to it, I was very gladly surprised to know that you had been in Bolivia, and I was very happy when you posted some interviews with Bolivian people in Spanish. I especially enjoyed the one about beekeeping. The theme of Chirimoya, I believe, was very interesting from a Bolivian perspective, but unfortunately, I think the expert invited was limited by a common problem in Bolivian agronomos, as we are called. That means agronomists. The lack of creativity to solve problems related to lack of economics resources is outstanding. And when you ask about expanding or improving the conditions of poor farmers, there is always the pretext of lack of resources or lack of government help. And Sergio also wrote in and asked me if I would be interested in doing some interviews with some people in Bolivia who are trying to reduce the reliance on pesticides there. And, well, Sergio, I do enjoy interviewing people from Bolivia and from elsewhere in Latin America, and I do enjoy doing interviews in Spanish. But most of the people who listen to this podcast um, are English speakers. So short of an episode similar to the episode I did with Moises Jimenez, which was a video photo um, montage with subtitles, uh, I do not have too many plans to do any interviews with Bolivians or other Latin Americans in Spanish. And that is because it is a lot of work for me to do the translation and the photo montage and the subtitling. I still do have some material from my interview with Moises Jimenez that I would like to get up on the website sometime soon. It is the second half of my interview with Moises, but I just have not had the time to sit down and do that. So I do appreciate your suggestion for interviewing some of the people in Bolivia, and I definitely appreciate the work that some of these groups are doing. Unfortunately, I'm just not in a position right now to be able to do the labor-intensive work of doing interviews in Spanish, and I really want to put interviews up there that the majority of our listeners can listen to, which means in English. Now, I want to let listeners know that I have been on recently the Sea Realm podcast. That was oh, almost two episodes ago now. I did mention that on a previous episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. And I will link to that on the show notes for this episode of the podcast where KMO and myself are talking about agro-collapse and micro-remediation in the Gulf of Mexico based on the ongoing oil spill that is uh, really devastating the economies and the wildlife in that part of the country. I've also written an article about micro-remediation in the Gulf on the Agro-Innovations blog, and I will link to that on the show notes for this episode as well. 
Uh, one thing that I have not mentioned is that I was on the Next Step podcast, which is a podcast produced by Jarrett Sanchez. Um, I believe that is at nextstep.podomatic.com. And I will link to the interview that I did with Jarrett about the topic of Gandhian economics. And really what we talked about was some of the spiritual and um, psychological aspects of Gandhian economics that I felt at the time were important to take into consideration when we look at the example that Gandhi set for us and we try to implement some of the ideas uh, that are part of Gandhi's legacy. So, as I said, I will link to that on the show notes for this episode. You can check that out if you're interested. And I'd also like to let listeners know that I have been very busy for the past couple of weeks. I made a trip to Querétaro, Mexico for some work, a presentation that I was doing there. You can find that presentation. It is in Spanish on the Agro Innovations blog. It is a PowerPoint presentation, and it is on the topic of soil carbon and soil carbon markets. So if you are interested in that topic, you can take a look at that presentation. Again, it is in Spanish. Um, so I was in Mexico about two to three weeks ago. And since coming back, I have finally had to bite the bullet and fix the computer problems that have been plaguing me for the past six months or so. And I have done that, and now everything is working very smoothly. But uh, fixing those problems took up a lot of my time. That is the reason why there was no episode of the podcast last week, and I am not sure if there will be an episode next week. I don't have anything at the moment lined up. I will try to get something lined up, time permitting. Hopefully, a couple of weeks from now, you can expect a regular flow of podcasts once again as I get back into the rhythm of things. But until then, I would just ask our listeners to be patient and... Um, if there are some shows in the archive that you haven't listened to that you've been wanting to get caught up on, maybe now would be a good time to do so. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. There's a link to that on the agroinnovations.com website, um, specifically on the podcast page. Also, you can subscribe to the Agro-Innovations Podcast via iTunes. There's a link to that on the Agro-Innovations Podcast webpage. Or you can use our RSS feed, which is right there on the page as well. This is the Agro-Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. 